0: Jesus is always challenging, sometimes he's a little baffling, and I think today's story is one of those. One of those stories where we see things and we stop and we step back and we say, what in the world is going on? Because Jesus seems to be acting very differently than he does through so much of the rest of the Gospels. So let's back up a little bit, we're in the Gospel of Mark, we've been studying for the past number of weeks, and the Gospel of Mark is this story of Jesus it's a story and Jesus talks a lot about the kingdom of God he comes and he proclaims that the kingdom of God is coming and the kingdom of God is God's rule and reign it involves people and it involves a king and it's about God and so Jesus is going along and he's talking about this and all through his ministry he's teaching the people and demonstrating what the kingdom of God looks like and the people are wondering still what it's going to look like and who this king is and along the way Jesus teaches about the nature of the kingdom And then as the story of Mark progresses, he begins to talk about the need for him to go to Jerusalem. And then when he goes to Jerusalem, he'll be handed over, that he'll be beaten, that he'll die, and on the third day rise again. And the disciples, his followers, are baffled by all of this. But slowly, Jesus and his disciples make their way to Jerusalem. And so at the beginning of chapter 11, we see Jesus enter Jerusalem. It's the Feast of Passover when the Jewish people celebrate this major event when God had freed the people of Israel out of slavery, and they come and, by the droves every year to Jerusalem to celebrate. And Jesus makes an entrance and he comes riding on a donkey, and he's making this statement. he's in some sense, enacting this thing, saying, "I am the one that the prophet spoke of, the one that the prophet Zechariah spoke of, that a, the king would come riding in on a donkey, and so Jesus, in some sense, is saying, I am the one that I've been talking about. And he rides in on what we often think of as Palm Sunday, this last Sunday in his life here on earth. And so he comes in and he rides in. And so that's chapter 11. And at the end of it, in verse 11 of chapter 11, verse 11, it says, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, He went out to Bethany with the twelve. So Jesus makes this entrance into Jerusalem. He comes in, surveys the temple, and then he goes back out to Bethany, this little town just a little ways outside of Jerusalem. And so what we've been doing is looking through the Gospel of Mark, but we wanted to slow down a little bit as we get to the end of Jesus' life and see what happens in this last week of his life. So on Sunday, he's ridden into Jerusalem, and he's come, and then he goes and he surveys the temple one of the things we have to understand about the temple is the sheer size of this thing. Um, I've read different things, and the number that sticks in my head was it probably covered about 35 acres, the whole temple mount. So we're not talking a little tiny country. This is a huge complex. There were outer walls, and there were multiple courts. There was the court of the Gentiles, and then the court for the women and the men, and then another inner court, and it was this progressively thing down to the center holy of holies where the high priest could enter once a year. But it was this place that represented all the hopes and dreams of the people of Israel. It wasn't just a religious center. It was a a symbol of national pride. This was the place where God had said he would place his name. It was a reminder to the people of Israel of God's presence with them. So Jesus comes in and he surveys it. One of the central functions of the temple was the offering of sacrifices. And in the Old Testament, there were this whole series of sacrifices done. Well, sacrifices involved animals. Now, imagine that you are a pilgrim coming to Jerusalem. That you are coming maybe from 40, 50, 60 miles away to make this pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And I mentioned this last week, that the city of Jerusalem was maybe 50,000 during Passover, may have grown to 500,000 people. So there's hundreds of thousands of people streaming to Jerusalem, and they're wanting to come and make their sacrifices. Now, you had to walk there where you didn't have a minivan, you didn't have the There was an Amtrak headed to Jerusalem. You had to make your way. So now you're going to Jerusalem to make a sacrifice. And you have to walk 40 or 50 miles. Do you want to carry your animal 40 or 50 miles in addition to everything else to make the sacrifice? No. So what they had set up was a system around Jerusalem where you could purchase animals for sacrifice. And typically these were outside of the temple court. They were outside there and you could come in and you had to go to money changers. And so if you've ever been in the airport, And you travel to foreign countries, there's a little booth set up, right? And so you come in and you have to exchange your dollars for euros or your dollars for lira or wherever you're going to, you're exchanging your money. And it was the same way then. There was one type of currency accepted in the temple and there were all these other things. So people would come in and they would exchange their money. And then they would purchase their animals, their sheep or their doves or their cows for the sacrifice and they would go in. And these were set up all around the temple. And so Jesus has gone in on Sunday, and he looks around, sees what's going on, and then he goes back. And so we pick up our story for today on Monday. And it seems like maybe Jesus has a case of the Mondays. Sometimes we don't like Mondays, do we? We wake up on Monday, and we're like, oh, and just nothing goes right. Because Jesus wakes up on Monday, and all of a sudden we see him behaving extremely differently than we used to. And it starts off, and there's this story. We have this weird story with the fig tree and the story with the temple. And they really belong together because we notice there's sort of this sandwich. There's the story of the fig tree and the story of the temple, and then we go back to the fig tree. And Mark is trying to help us see that those two stories go together, that somehow they help us understand. So, But first we have this story of the fig tree. It says Jesus is leaving Bethany, and it says he sees in the distance a fig tree and leaf. And one of the unique things about fig trees is the leaves stayed on while the fruit was there. And the leaves came before the fruit came. And so he sees the fig tree to leaf and he went to find out if it had any fruit. So it says he goes and when he reached it he found nothing but leaves. And then Mark says something weird because he says because it was not the season for figs. Okay, so Jesus had spent 33 years of his life in this region of the country. Do we have any doubt that Jesus knew when fig season was? So if Jesus already knew there wouldn't be any figs, why was he going over there? Well, Mark wants us to get at that here when he says, because it was not the season for figs, Mark is kind of dropping us a clue saying, Jesus is doing this, but it's not really about getting figs. There's something else going on in the story. And he goes over there and Jesus says, there's nothing. And then Jesus does this weird thing. He says, oh, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And so I think, now if I were to go over to our house and we planted some apple trees and cherry trees and different things around our house, and if I were to go over there right now and look for apples or cherries, you guys would think I'm crazy, right? And then what if I said, oh, this cursed tree, and then I'd like chop the tree down because there weren't any apples or cherries on it. And you think, why in the world would you do that? Why in the world would Jesus curse a fig tree when it wasn't the right season for the figs? And We say, okay, maybe it's just a case of the Mondays, right? And so we move on and we say, okay. Because then it kind of, he says, well, the disciples heard him say it and then we move on and we say, well, that was weird. And then it says, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling. So he comes into the temple And he begins overturning the tables. And once again we think, this does not seem like the Jesus we know. The Jesus who reached out to the lost, who reached out to the poor, the Jesus who always seemed so mild, who who cared for everyone. And now all of a sudden, he seems to have gotten this angry streak in him where he's in there and he's flipping over tables and he's driving people out of the temple. But then... We see something. He says, "We're not allowing anyone." In verse 17, it says, "And as he taught them," and all of a sudden we realize Jesus does this, but then he begins to teach them. So while sometimes we have this picture of this crazy scene where Jesus just running around, flipping around tables, and cracking a whip and screaming and yelling, we say, "Is there something else going on here? Is Jesus doing something else in this action?" And we get a hint of it when. He teaches in verse 17, and it says, and as he taught them, he said, is it not written? So is it not written? What's that a clue? It's a clue that he's quoting from somewhere else. I mean, this is a way of saying, is it not written is saying, open your Bibles, people, please, is what we would say. He would say, okay, here's this quote. He says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now if we were to open our Bibles, if we were to look and say, we wouldn't find any one place where both those things occur. But we would find two places where half of that occurs. So the part about a house of prayer for all nations in one place and then the den of robbers in another. So one is in Isaiah, one's in Jeremiah. And so maybe the clue to understanding what Jesus is doing is to go back to those. So the first one is from Isaiah chapter 56. And so the first 55 chapters of Isaiah, quick review is that in those first 55 chapters, God has been calling his people to behave a certain way. He says, you living as my people means you are to live a certain kind of life. But there's also this recognition that they're not living it. And then as it goes on, God says, but I am going to send you someone to rescue you. I'm going to send you this one and it's this picture of the suffering servant of this one who dies on behalf of the people. And then as the chapters finished from 56 to the end of the book of Isaiah chapter 66 it's this picture of how those two things work together of being empowered by God's grace to live a certain way so I'm going to read to you a little bit from chapter 56 it says this is what the Lord says maintain justice and do what is right for my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps their hand from doing any evil. So he's saying, this is still the the call to the people of God. That we're to live in a different way. And we live in a different way to keep ourselves so that we can proclaim who God is to the rest of the world. And he goes on and he says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, those I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. So he's saying there's all these different people who normally would be thought of as outside the nation of Israel. But he said, they're all welcome, all those who live according to what I have called them to do. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And so God is already pointing and painting in Isaiah this picture saying, this is what it's meant to be, that you, my people, are called to live holy lives. You're called to live different kind of lives. And the purpose is to draw the world to yourself. And part of what had happened is the people of Israel had begun to see their specialness. And this happens to all of us. People begin to think, oh, I'm special. And they forget they're called to do, they're called to be different for a reason. The people of God were called to be different because they were to proclaim God's goodness to the world. But they started to think, well, God called us, so we're special. And so they began to think of themselves more differently. And they began to push more and more people out. And so part of what had happened was now, as things had progressed along, I mentioned that there had been places often set up around the temple to sell the animals and did money changes. But it says here they were in the temple. Caiaphas, the high priest, had moved a lot of that inside the temple walls. Well, the first part inside the temple walls was the court of the Gentiles. This was the place where the people who were not Israelites could come in to the temple courts. But now, instead of being a place where this place of holiness, all of a sudden there were money changers and there were animals and there were all these things in it, and so the temple, which had been a place for all the people of the world to come into worship, now all of a sudden the people, the Gentiles, the nations, the outsiders, were excluded from it. And so when Jesus says, "We have called the house," he's saying he's looking around and saying, "You've forgotten your purpose. You've forgotten why God called you." And then Jeremiah and the prophets are fun to read sometimes but sometimes they're a challenge because they really they just they don't hold back and so Jeremiah is around the year 600 this is just before the people of God are taken off into exile and he's warning the people of their consequences and he says this this is the word this is Jeremiah chapter 7 this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message in other words go to the temple Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim this. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through the gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says: Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, "This is the temple of the Lord," the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And that wasn't me stuttering along the way here. It was this is is what Jesus is, or what God is saying through the people. He say. The people would literally come and they'd say, oh, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. It was kind of this chant, this rhythm they did. If you really change your ways and your actions and deeds and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow the other gods into your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Well, what are the deceptive words? The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. He goes goes on. He says, will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? And so there's the other part of Jesus saying, right? He says a den of robbers. Well, what? What's happening in Jeremiah? He's saying the people were running around doing all sorts of things, but then they would come in and they'd come in and they'd say, "Oh, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. We're good, right? Because we have this special relationship with God." Well, what is the purpose of a den of robbers? And sometimes when people read uh, the story, and I know for a while I did when I read the story of Jesus in the temple, in this mention of den of robbers, the assumption is what? Oh, they must be there. They're stealing from people, right? They're there, and that's why Jesus is upset, because they're, they're taking advantage of the people. But what's the purpose of a den of robbers? Do you rob people in your den? No, what's the purpose? The den is the place you go back, and you, it's your hideout, right? So you go out, and you rob, and you steal, and then you run back to your den. And what Jeremiah is saying is that that's how the people of God were acting. They thought, oh, we can go out, We can go out and we can do whatever we want. We can worship Baal, we can commit adultery, we can steal, we can do all these things, and then we can go running to the temple and say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. We're all good because we're God's special people. We're safe here. And so what is Jesus saying with this here? He's saying the people of God in His time were doing the same things. They thought they could behave any way they wanted, They thought they could do anything they wanted and then they could just come into the temple and say, oh, but it's okay because we're God's special people. So now we start to put these two things together. We say, well, wait a minute. What was the thing with the fig tree? Well, what was the problem that Jesus saw with the fig tree? No fruit, right? Well, if you've read your Bible and you say, oh, no fruit, that's a common theme through the Old Testament prophets is fruit was a symbol, even this idea of figs, even just if we were to go to Jeremiah chapter eight, that this was a picture that God gave his people. He said, you are called to bear fruit. Jesus uses the same thing. He says, you are called to bear fruit. And so these things, two things connect because what it's saying is Jesus comes in the temple and he's saying this was supposed to be a holy place, it was supposed to be a gathering place and you're treating it like a den of robbers. And you're supposed to be bearing fruit. And Jesus is saying the consequences of not bearing fruit are judgment. And so what is Jesus doing? He's acting out a parable. He's acting out this story saying these are the consequences. And these two stories together help us see it. Jesus is saying, people of God, you're called to bear fruit. You're called to be a light to the nations. You're called to share goodness. And you're called to do justice and to love mercy. And if you don't, there's a consequence for it. And so he's telling the people right then there will be judgment for failing to bear fruit, that we can't just come into the temple and do whatever we want. And so now we transfer and we jump ahead 2,000 years and we think, well, what about us? What sort of things do we do? And I think the story is still true for us is do we treat church as a place where we can just run and be safe? That as long as we show up for church on Sunday... But as long as maybe we write our check to the church, that maybe as long as we read our Bible once in a while, as long as we do those things, then the rest of our life really doesn't matter. Let me give you two examples from history because we realize that this problem that the people of God were facing 2,000 years ago didn't go away after Jesus. But people still had this idea where they sometimes could come into church and they could say, Well, but it's okay because we're in church right now, and the rest of the week doesn't matter. First thing I'm going to do now, I'm going to read a little bit from uh, Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass was a man who was born um, into slavery, and so lived as an enslaved person for the first 20 years of his life. was Born around 1818, Um, there are no exact records, but they've tried to narrow down. Born in 1818, escaped out of slavery in 1838, and then lived his life and became an abolitionist, a a speaker, and a writer. And he wrote a book called The Life of an American Slave. And at the end of it, this is what he writes. Frederick Douglass says, For between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference, so wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To be the friend of the one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. I look upon it as the climax of all misnomers, the boldest of all frauds, and the grossest of all libels. Never was there a clearer case of stealing the livery of the court of heaven to serve the devil. I am filled with unutterable loathing when I contemplate the religious pomp and show, together with the horrible inconsistencies which everywhere surround me. We have men stealers for ministers, whippers for missionaries, and cradle plunderers for church members. The man who wields the blood clotted cowskin during the week fills the pulpit on Sunday and claims to be a minister of the meek and lowly Jesus. The man who robs me of my earnings at the end of each week meets me as a class leader on Sunday morning to show me the way of life and the path of salvation. He who sells my sister for purposes of prostitution stands forth as the pious advocate of purity. He who proclaims it as a religious duty to read the Bible denies me the right of learning to read the name of God who made me. He who is the religious advocate of marriage robs whole millions of its sacred influence and leaves them in the ravages of wholesale pollution. The warm defender of the sacredness of the family relation is the same that scatters whole family, sundering husbands and wives, parents and children, sisters and brothers, leaving the hut vacant and the hearth desolate. We see the thief preaching against theft and the adulterer against adultery. We have men sold to build churches, women sold to support the gospel, and babies sold to purchase Bibles for the poor heathen, all for the glory of God and the good of souls. So we have to think about when Frederick Douglass was writing these words around 1840, 1850, about 15 years before the Civil War, which cost over three-quarter million lives here in the United States, when he was writing this, what else was going on in the United States? The Great Revival. So there was this huge revival going on where souls are being saved. And where was that revival having its greatest effect? South of the Mason-Dixon line. So hundreds and thousands of people were flocking to churches and they were living in the churches and they would sit side by side and as Douglas describes it there, they would come into the churches and proclaim the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Here everything is good and I'm in union with my brother and sister and they would refer to these men and women and children as their brothers in Christ and then they would God and Monday, and then they would beat them and sell them. And this is exactly what Jesus was talking about. It was what Jeremiah was talking about. Was it was not okay. They, they saw the church as a place. They look, I'm a good Christian. I come in and I preach the Bible. I talk about these things. And, and I enter into the church and everything's all okay. And they would ignore the other six days of the week and what took place. Let's jump forward to the year 2021. And I don't know how many of you are familiar with the story, but um, Rabbi Zecharias was a leading apologist. He spoke around the world for many years, um, defending the gospel, leading uh, ministries and bringing people to Christ. And rec- well, over the past couple of years, things have come out, and recently, the Rabbi Zecharias international Ministries released a report that detailed in-depth the way Rabbi Zacharias had abused women over the course of his ministry. Where he had a private masseuse that traveled with him when he went overseas, that he kept a, an apartment with her, that there were women and women. And one of the worst things I read, I didn't read the entire report, I read a little bit of it, was the part where there was a woman who came to him and said to him, you know, what you're doing is wrong and I'm going to go and to tell someone about it. And do you know what Rabbi Zacharias responded to her? What she said, he said was, if you do that, if you do that, you will ruin my ministry. And imagine the millions of souls that will be damaged if you accuse me of doing this. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. In other words, what Rabbi Zacharias was saying, I'm doing all this great stuff for the Lord. So all this other stuff, don't interfere with that by telling me I'm not living my life right. Don't interfere with all those things going on because if I am found out, if you tell people that I'm not really the person who I say I'm, if you tell people that I've been abusing you, that I've been taking advantage of you, that I've been using my power in inappropriate ways, then this will harm my ministry. It will harm the souls of other people. He manipulated his position. He manipulated the cause of Christ to continue to abuse this woman. He did exactly what Jesus and Jeremiah were talking about. He said, Oh, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. As long as we're doing our holy stuff, then the rest of it doesn't matter. And what did Jesus say to that? He said, There is judgment. He said, I'm going to curse that fig tree. I'm going to cut it down. I'm going to flip these tables over because that is not the way of Jesus. That is not the way of the kingdom of God. And so what he's inviting us to do, church, is to examine ourselves, is to say, how are we living out the call to be the people of God? How do we care for the poor? How do we care for the oppressed? How do we fight for justice in the world? And are we content to just come in sometimes and sit and say, but look, I'm here in church on Sunday. It doesn't really matter the things I do during the rest of the week. And if I were to sit down with each and every one of you, most of you, if you've been around church for a while, could probably tell me those same stories. The same stories of somebody you knew in your church who would come in on a Sunday sit proudly in the front row, maybe with their family next to them, stand up and read the Bible, and then you would go and you would see them at work on Monday And the way they treated their employees or the way they treated other people. You might see the way they treated their family. You might even see it just happen in the parking lot outside the church. And what Jesus is saying is, it's not just about that little time when you're in the temple. Church is not a den Of robbers, where we can do whatever we want and we can run and just say, I'm in the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, and be okay. It's not a magic protective place. God calls us to live holy lives everywhere. But it's a story of good news, too, because this is what the story of Jesus is. Because the reality is, we don't live perfect lives outside the walls. So what God invites us to do is not to come in here and say, I'm all safe in here, but to come in here and, as we do, come in here and say, God, I'm not living the life I'm supposed to live. God, I've fallen short. And to come and to receive forgiveness from Jesus, to confess those sins, not to simply say, oh, I'm safe here, but to come and say, God, I've fallen short. And then when we do that, we're remembering the rest of this story That Jesus came and he died. That this same one who cursed is also the same one who said, I will take the curse upon me. That Jesus doesn't just end the story by saying, oh, you people are fruitless and you're done. But instead, he takes the judgment of God upon himself so that we can live and have life. So while I invite you out to consider how you live that life outside, but to also recognize that in the end what Jesus invites us to do is to come in and to confess and to receive forgiveness for that, and then to be empowered by the Spirit to live a different kind of life, to live a holy life, to live the kind of life that says that's who we are, a kind of life that points to God and His goodness. So when you come to church, when you sit down with your Bible, don't think of it as a magical place to say, oh, I'm safe from everything else. It's okay because I'm in church now. But instead to ask yourself, how does what I say and do and read here match up with the rest of my life? And then when it doesn't, to not deny it, to not say but it's okay because I'm in here now, but instead to take that to Jesus. And to say Jesus forgive me. And to receive his forgiveness and to be transformed. Because that's the good news of the gospel. This gospel, this good news of the kingdom is that Jesus invites us and through his death and resurrection changes and transforms us to be the people that God has called us to be. To be a light to the nations. We are the people of God, called to be a light. May we be that light, empowered by the Spirit, forgiven by Jesus, and living under Him as our King. Amen.